The second reading is from Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for my stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be a guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. It's a delight to be back with you this week. Um, we are in the second of a brief little two-part series on the spiritual discipline of confession, that formative practice in which we acknowledge that we are not what we ought to be. We've already done this in the service uh, earlier. We sang this when we sang the 51st Psalm. We'll do it again later. But we want to look at what this practice means for us and, and how it is to be part of our lives. Because the gospel does not tell us that we are good people getting better, but that we are broken people needing redemption. And as we saw last week, this practice of confessing our sins, of acknowledging where we've gone wrong is critical both to our own healing and to our testimony about Jesus. So last week we looked at 1 John chapter 1 and considered why it is so hard for us to come clean. Uh, and I'll remind you that there were three stories that we tell ourselves that keep us hiding, that keep us pretending like we're all right. And those stories are, I'm sure I'm right, I'm sure I'm good, and I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. But through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus brings us out of the shadows and into a posture of curiosity. It's the way I describe 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, walking in the light, not walking without sin, because if walking in the light meant that we had no sin, it wouldn't make any sense, because it's those who walk in the light who have all of their sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So it cannot mean that walking in the light is doing everything right. What it means is that we're open with God, and whatever he turns up in our lives, we acknowledge as truly there. And I use the word curiosity on purpose because there's, if there's one danger on the one hand of kind of clamming up and just living in this self-deluded notion that I'm fine and everyone else has a problem, there's a danger on the other side, and that is the danger of introspection. Some people think that confessing their sins means that we're supposed to comb through every detail of our lives and try to find every little bit that's out of place. The end of that path, however, is not confession, as the scriptures speak of it. It's groveling. And that's not where we're going. It's not what we're talking about. So I encourage last week a posture of curiosity with yourself, with the thoughts you have, the stories you tell yourself, why is it that I, I, I do this, uh, and to see how it is that your inner life 
reveals itself in your outer life. So moving away from a, a rigid stance where I'm sure about myself and moving towards a curiosity that responds to God and to others with, frankly, with the word, huh, I, I'd never seen that. I wonder what that's all about. After all, not everything God turns up in our lives is a sin to be confessed. And in spaces like this, uh, in, in churches and in, in spiritual conversations, we can take, we can tend to make everything uh, a matter of either righteousness or unrighteousness, uh, sinfulness or, or, or goodness. And we miss other dimensions like our personality. Like, I probably said that because that's the way I am. Or our family of origin or the way we were formed. Uh, or our culture. Uh, when I pastored on the Upper West Side, uh, I, I tried to encourage people to just call me Matthew. My name's Matthew. And, and people just insisted on calling me pastor. I'm like, you don't have, I mean, goodness, Paul, they called Paul, Paul, right? They didn't call him Saint Paul or the Apostle Paul. It was Brother Saul, right? Um, so just call me Matthew. And, and it was like, no, 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 like it's a cultural thing. For a lot of the people in our congregation, they could not call me simply Matthew. It would be dishonoring. So there's a lot of things that aren't right or wrong. That's why I try to emphasize this point of curiosity. So last week our focus was on coming clean before God. Now let's add something to our understanding of this discipline of confession. Recognizing that it's always going to be hard for us to come clean, right? These stories we tell ourselves, I'm sure I'm right, are deeply embedded, and they come out before we can even tame it. But let's add a word, and the word I want to add is actually from a passage that was not read today. Uh, it's from James chapter 5, verse 16. Now, it's not our text, which is why it wasn't read today, but some of you already, knows, uh, some of you already know this passage. In writing about uh, the prayer of faith, James says to us in James chapter 5, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to, do you know how this, he fills in the blank? Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Now, that is an added bit of information for us. Confess our sins to God, right? James says confess our faults to one another. Now, our text today, like I said, is not the James passage. Our text today is actually the gospel reading from Luke chapter 19, the wonderful story of Zacchaeus. I pick Zacchaeus as our passage of focus today because this story illustrates so powerfully what James's command looks like in real life. Here you have Zacchaeus at the end of this encounter with Jesus in verse 8 saying, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Talk about confessing your sins to somebody, right? Well, that's a tremendous demonstration of what it looks like for us to, to acknowledge our wrongdoing to another human being. Now, I'm sure some of you are saying, well, wait a second, Zacchaeus is talking to Jesus. I mean, does that really count? I mean, Jesus is God, right? Yes, he is, okay? But at the same time, consider this story from Zacchaeus's perspective. This story happens before the cross, what's more, before the resurrection. In Zacchaeus's mind, this is a great rabbi, a great teacher, maybe even the Messiah, but even the, the first century notion of what the Messiah would be and do was in many ways mistaken by so many people, like almost everybody, okay? 
even his own disciples. So here is Zacchaeus going to another human being and making this incredible confession. And Jesus is, while fully God, of course, fully human. He was no phantom or apparition. So this story is an incredible illustration of the command to confess your sins to one another. And this, I say, adds to our understanding. Last week, our focus was on coming clean, confessing our sins to God. This week, we learn that we must open up. And that's the title of today's message, Opening Up. Opening up with one another. Now, friends, if last week was hard, this week is excruciating. It's one thing to come clean to God in the privacy of our own quiet time or at the end of a worship service when the Spirit is moving. It's another thing for us to look, at, look someone else in the eye and tell them my faults. So this is a scary thing we're talking about today, to open up with someone else. And what's fascinating to me as I reflected on this story of Zacchaeus and Jesus is that the very things we fear when it comes to confessing our faults to one another those very fears are exemplified in this passage. We tend to think of this story, and I've already described it this way, as the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus, two characters. But it's quite clear that our gospel writer, Luke, wants us to think of this passage in terms of three characters. The third character is right there in verse 3, the crowd of people. The crowd of people surrounding Jesus. The crowd of people celebrating Jesus. The crowd of people walking with Jesus. The crowd of people who were disciples of Jesus. This story doesn't merely direct our attention to Zacchaeus and Jesus. It also directs our attention to the relationship between Zacchaeus and this crowd of Jesus' followers. Do you notice how the relationship starts? It starts right there in verse 3 with Zacchaeus wanting to see Jesus, but he, he couldn't because he was too short. Now, picture that scene. Jesus, crowd, celebration. The Messiah is coming to our town. The rabbi is coming to our town, right? All caught up in the worship of Jesus. And Zacchaeus on the outside trying to get in, trying to get a glimpse. At best, friends... These disciples of Jesus, these followers, this crowd around Jesus is unaware of Zacchaeus' great longing to know Jesus. At best, they're unaware. There might have been something worse in play, which we'll get into uh, in a moment, but at best, they're unaware of him. Was there no one who saw this man? Straining? Was there no one who could create a path to let him in? Apparently not. And friends, this might be what keeps some of us from opening up. We feel invisible. So we don't take the brave step of going to another follower of Jesus and opening up about our lives. Why should we? We already feel like no one knows us. Some of you might be here every Sunday, but you don't feel known or even seen. In the throng of all the worshipers around Jesus, you haven't felt noticed by another brother or sister. But in the story, that relationship between Zacchaeus and the crowd gets worse because when Jesus sees Zacchaeus and says he must spend time with him, the crowd responds in verse 7 by saying, 
He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, this, this is where it might, be help, might have been helpful for us to have an audio recording, right? But I think it's pretty clear from the context that they're not saying it like this. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Isn't that great? Right? That's not what's in their mind, what's in their heart. It is instead, I can't believe that this great rabbi would spend time with such a notorious cheat. Now, don't run past this too quickly. At one level, do you see how those false narratives we talked about last week are showing up in the crowd right now? I'm sure I'm right. <laughs> right? I'm sure I'm a good person. I'm sure I'm a good person. Zach, he's going to spend time with Zacchaeus. Does he know who that guy is? I'm sure I haven't done anything wrong. The crowd is not identifying themselves with the supposedly egregiously sinful Zacchaeus. No, they're standing over Zacchaeus as his judge and patting themselves on the back for being so sure that they were right. Such good people haven't done anything wrong. If they were curious at all about what was going on in their own hearts, about the stories they were telling themselves, they might have seen how their inner life showed up in their outer life with muttering and judgmental venom. But that's not the whole of it. Let me ask you a question. What was it in their minds that made Zacchaeus such a great sinner? Why were they singling this guy out? Luke gives us two possible answers to that question, both of which are in verse 2. In their mind, Zacchaeus is such a great sinner either because he was a chief tax collector or because he was rich. It's one or the other. Those are the only indications of what was so wrong with Zacchaeus, why they were so, took such a judgmental posture towards him. Interestingly, this is the only time in the Gospels where that word for the chief tax collector is used. We have tax collectors, publicans throughout the Gospels. Zacchaeus is the only one identified as being a chief tax collector, as being in charge of the other tax collectors. And as you know, this is not just the IRS, right? I, I just settled a dispute with the IRS, which was a pain. I ended up having to sue the IRS, which I'm like, what am I doing? Not, not a path I wanted to be on, right? Just mentioning the IRS in April ought to be disciplinable by a church, right? Like, what was I doing? Um, but this is not just the IRS saying, hey, like, make sure you pay your taxes. Oftentimes, tax collectors line their pockets. If, they, if someone owed, say, 10%, they'd say, well, pay me 15%, and they'd keep the five, right? Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's in charge of these thugs. That's the way they're seeing him. He's a chief tax collector, and he's rich, and his wealth was won through dishonest gain. He was cheating people by forcing them to pay more taxes than they owed. In the minds of the crowd, either his high political position made him a notorious sinner, or his wealth made him a notorious sinner, or most likely both. Now here's what's fascinating. When Zacchaeus makes his confession to Jesus, a confession, mind you, that Jesus accepts and says, today salvation has come here. 
Notice what Zacchaeus says in verse 8. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Right? Now do the math. From the outset, he gives away half of his goods. And of what remains, he says, I'll double what the law requires for anyone I've defrauded. The law requires me to give back twice as much, I'll give back four times as much. Okay? This, friends, is on top of the first half he's already given away. Right? You see where this is going? If he's giving away four times to anyone he's defrauded, then at most, the amount that he's won through fraud is one quarter of one half because he couldn't give away anymore. He already gave away the first half, right? You following? One half's gone, and of the rest, if there's anyone I've defrauded, I will give four times that. So the amount that he defrauded anyone at most is a quarter of a half, which is one-eighth. At most, 12%. At the very most, 12% of what he had gotten, he had gotten through ill-gotten gain. Now, I'm not saying that's great, but do you see how the people are making him out to be this notorious wretch who is only wealthy, who has lined his wallet on the backs of the poor, and at most it's one-eighth of his gains. Remember, Jesus accepts this confession. He doesn't say, "Eh, the math doesn't work. In fact, biblical scholar William Hendrickson points out, does not that fourfold amount plus half of my possessions the latter for the poor. Doesn't that fourfold amount plus half of my possessions tend to prove that Zacchaeus cannot have been grossly dishonest? Otherwise, Hendrickson concludes, would he have been able to make such a generous restitution? What I'm trying to say is not Zacchaeus was squeaky clean. What I'm trying to say is this. The crowd saw Zacchaeus as this notorious sinner, and they can't believe that Jesus would deign to spend time with him. But in the end, their perception of him was all wrong. In other words, he was entirely misunderstood by the crowds, who were so certain of his exceeding great sinfulness. This actually might be the reason. I, perhaps it's not just that they were unaware that Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus. This is a a chief tax collector. They knew who he was. I wonder, I can't prove, but I wonder if it was like, not him. Jesus is not the rabbi for him. He's the people's rabbi, not the rich. And friends, this too keeps us from opening up. Our fear, or even worse, our experience of being misunderstood. We put ourselves out there. We share what's going on with another, and they just don't understand. I mean, have you ever had a situation where you're talking with a brother or sister in Christ, and you shared something that you're struggling with, and they kind of express shock? Like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. I know. (laughs) That's why I'm telling you, right? 
Or I remember one time, as a pastor, sitting down with, with someone, that they were a very young, energetic believer, you know, going to conquer the world. And, but I could get no transparency from this person about what was like really going on in their lives. And I thought, well, you know, transparency breeds transparency. So I'll be transparent with this person, and hopefully they'll be transparent. And so I, I shared something. It wasn't anything like major, big, life-changing. But I, I just shared something. And uh, I'll never forget his response. He looked at me and he was like, I'll, I'll pray for you. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Um, or they try to fix us. Or they try to tell us everything we should do differently, as if we didn't know that, right? It's that misunderstanding that keeps us from opening up. And this, of course, leads to a third fear we have. Not only are we invisible and uh, misunderstood, but like Zacchaeus, we fear being rejected. Did you notice there's a very little word in verse 7 I don't want you to miss? And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Do you feel the utter aloneness of Zacchaeus in this moment? Not a single, not a single person in the crowd had his back. Not a one. To a person, they wrote him off as just another rich, corrupt politician, alone in a tree, alone in a crowd. Friends, these three fears, I am unseen, I am misunderstood, I am rejected. These are more than just fears. These three statements sadly describe the way some of you feel right now in a crowd of people celebrating Jesus, following Jesus, worshiping Jesus. You might as well be sitting in a tree watching the party go by. And it might not be fun to be unnoticed, but it sure beats outright rejection by every single person. You figure you might as well just go it alone. But friends, I'm here to remind you that you are not alone. Even when you are not seen, or you are misunderstood, or you are even rejected, there is someone who sees you and understands you and welcomes you. And his name is Jesus. I love how this story turns with our Savior, still surrounded by the crowd, but he stops. And he looks and then in verse uh, 5, it says that Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus. He calls him by his name. To the crowd, he was just another rich, corrupt politician, but to Jesus, he was Zacchaeus. And do you know what Jesus did for Zacchaeus? Not just in this story, but in the life of Jesus? I'll let the Hebrew prophet answer this question. The prophet Isaiah. In that iconic 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which many of us will contemplate in the next few weeks leading up to Good Friday. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, the prophet predicts that Jesus would grow up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Do you know what that image is meant to convey? How much hope does a plant have if it's in dry ground? Not much. 
He goes on to say he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, friends, Jesus understands what it's like to be unnoticed. For all of his growing up years, for the first 30 years of his life, we hardly know anything about him. That's because he was like a root out of a dry ground. Like, what can anything good come out of Nazareth? He knows what it's like to be unseen, to have people not even know you're there. But there's more, for Isaiah goes on to predict that on the cross, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, the crowd would look on and esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The people looked at what Jesus was enduring on the cross and concluded that such a horrific punishment must mean that Jesus was the worst of sinners, that God himself was striking him dead. In the very moment he was making atonement for the sins of the world, those who witnessed his crucifixion concluded, this is the most notorious of sinners. They completely misunderstood him. And that's still not all. For after failing even to notice him, and then after misunderstanding him, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 predicts, uh, verse 3 predicts that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men. They flat out rejected him. I say they, but of course I mean we. For Isaiah makes clear that Jesus was rejected by humanity, by every single one of us. Friends, do you see what Jesus has done for Zacchaeus? Do you see what Jesus has done for you? He has taken on himself all our fears. He's taken on himself all of our experiences of being unseen and misunderstood and rejected. You see, Jesus experienced life truly as we experience it. He knows what it's like to be alone in a tree. Friends, he knows what it's like to be alone on a tree. And he went there so that he could look you in the eye and call you by name, Zacchaeus, Clint, Matthew. You are not alone. I know what it is to be unseen and misunderstood and rejected it. I experienced it for you. And then, friends, on the third day, he walked out of the grave to break the power of sin and fear and death and to give us new life by the Spirit and to put you in a community of other people in which you might be healed, which is the promise of James 5. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. No, this doesn't undo everything I said before about followers of Jesus overlooking us or misunderstanding us or just rejecting us. The body of Christ is very much a work in progress, but it is to say that within the community of Jesus' followers, he does have some people, maybe only one, who is safe for you. One person or a few people to whom you can open up and not remain unseen or misunderstood or rejected. Friends, his resurrection means new life. His resurrection means a new community because his resurrection, because by his resurrection and ascension, the spirit has come. So no, he's not calling you to go to the crowd and air all your dirty laundry. That's not what James is saying. But he does have someone or a few someones where it is safe to have this kind of relationship. That, of course, brings up the big question of the sermon. 
how do I find that person, <laughs> right? That's a great question, and I'm not going to answer it. You can blame my spiritual director. <laughs> he'll never know, uh, unless he watches the sermon. Hi. Um, and then he'll know. When I talked to him about this sermon, he had a different suggestion for me in terms of like how I would conclude this message. He suggested rather than giving tests for finding safe people, he said, why don't you answer the question, how do you become a safe person? How do you be the kind of person that other people can come to? Because that command, confess your faults to one another, it goes both ways. Sometimes we're confessing and sometimes we're hearing someone else. And, if, and his point was, if you can learn how to become a safe person, it'll be easy for you to find a safe person because you know what it's like, right? I thought that was brilliant. So I am blaming him and crediting him all at the same time. So how then do we become a safe person? Let me suggest four quick thoughts in conclusion. And we're going to start where we started last time. Adopt a posture of curiosity, okay? What we learned last week. We've already seen in the crowd of followers the kind of rigidity we talked about last week. I'm sure I'm right, and so forth. The crowd wasn't safe for Zacchaeus because they weren't curious about themselves, and neither can we. So, the first way to become a safe person is last week's sermon. Okay? Adopt a posture of curiosity. Second, becoming safe means we need to learn from Jesus in his simple action of calling Zacchaeus by name. Verse 7, Zacchaeus, right? Becoming safe means we love people for who they are. We know them. We recognize them. We call them by their name. We spend time with them. We share life with them. Becoming safe means we learn to love people for who they are, not for what they can do for us, and not for how we can change them. We simply learn to love them for who they are, for who God made them to be. Which brings up something interesting about this interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus. Prior to Zacchaeus' confession in verse 8, Luke actually doesn't tell us what Jesus said to elicit that response. Right? Wouldn't you love to know? Like it goes from Jesus saying, Zacchaeus, I'm going to spend time with you, and the crowd muttering. And next thing you know, Zacchaeus is saying, like, making this great confession. What happened in between? He doesn't tell us. But here's what we do know. Whatever Jesus said, it prompted Zacchaeus to this remarkable resolution. I'll give away half my goods. If I've defrauded anyone, I'll multiply it by four. Whatever Jesus said, it wasn't a yes or no question. Will you right now in this moment commit to giving half your goods to the poor? Yes, I will. There's nothing wrong with yes or no questions, but it was a conversation. He had a conversation with Zacchaeus that led to Zacchaeus' own determination on what he needed to do. What that means for us, third, is that becoming safe means we let people figure it out. Can I put it another way? If you're going to be a safe person, you've got to stop trying to fix them. It's not your job to be their redeemer. They have a redeemer, and he's really good. Okay? 
If someone opens up to you about their faults, they already know they're in error. They don't need you to tell them to do better or to do something different or to try harder. They know that. That's why they're coming to you. One of the best gifts you can give them is to simply listen, to give space to them to process what's going on inside with another human being. The Spirit of God is in them. He'll he'll help them figure it out. And finally, we see from Jesus, verse 9, this incredible word of grace. Today, salvation has come. Jesus assures him he is forgiven. He reminds him who he really is, a true son of Abraham. Even calling Zacchaeus by his name was a reminder of his identity. Do you know what the name Zacchaeus means? It means pure one, innocent one, righteous one. In other words, at every turn, Jesus reminds Zacchaeus of the gospel. And for us to become safe as well, we need to remind people who they are. Remind them whose they are. Beloved in Jesus, seen and known, understood, welcomed, and accepted. They belong to Jesus, so remind them who they are. Yes, friends, it can be excruciating to open up with another follower of Jesus. But there's healing for you on the other side. So friends, I encourage you to take the first brave step, even today, and follow Jesus into becoming a safe person for someone else. Who knows, in the process, you might find a safe person for yourself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a salvation that rescues us as individuals, but that does not leave us alone in a tree. We pray that in our community, in our relationships with our brothers and sisters, we would reflect the safety of Jesus for people to be who they are, to acknowledge where they've gone wrong, and to find healing in the gospel. We pray that same healing for ourselves, and we pray that more and more we might heed James's word confess our faults to one another, and thereby be healed. For we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.